MC Podcast. How many people know, uh, have read the book, The Master Plan for Evangelism? I met that dude yesterday. Bro, dude is like 90-some years old, and he's at the end of the session in, uh, at the discipleship.org forum, and he's getting really excited, and he's praying, and he almost tipped over and fell back. <laughs> crazy. Uh, but anyway, uh, I... The first, my first encounter with him was, was with his book when I was in the penitentiary. And, you know, I grew up in gang culture. My mama was on crack cocaine. My daddy was on heroin. At the age of 16, I was facing 100 years in the penitentiary, went to prison, got out, did that whole thing, went right back after five months. And at the age of 16, I was facing, uh, or 18, facing 200 years in the penitentiary. And... And uh, that was March 21st, 2002, at 1 o'clock in the morning, I bowed my knee to Jesus. And I didn't grow up in church, but I had a good enough sense to know that I was bankrupt. And I uh, prayed this pretty small, big, audacious prayer, and it was simply, God, I'm destroying my life, but if you change me, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And that, became, that, like, that began my journey of becoming a disciple. And as I sat in county jail waiting to be sentenced, uh, I was on the phone one day talking to someone and I overheard a conversation. And the conversation was about a dude who uh, had become a Christian and he had uh, a life sentence. He was on his way to prison for a life sentence. And God had spoke to this guy with a life sentence and told him that he was going to get him out and send him back to his neighborhood. So as I'm eavesdropping on this conversation, I get off the phone and I said, hey, can you run that by me one more time? Tell me what happened. And they began to tell me about this. And, and as I'm listening, I hear the wind of God, man. I hear the, the, the still small voice of God. And, and I hear God say, I'm going to get you out of prison and you're going to plant churches. Had no clue what that meant. I argued with God over that one. Uh, seven months after I got sentenced to 16 to 33 years in prison, uh, state of Nebraska sent me a, a letter telling me that they had changed the law when it came to my sentencing structure. And after almost eight years of doing prison time, God released me. Wasn't supposed to get out until 2000. And, and, 19, and God released me in 2008. So he opened up the door, and if that wasn't cool enough, I end up meeting a white dude from, uh, from, uh, <laughs> praise God for white folks. That <laughs> a white guy, and he was doing inner city ministry. I talk a lot about race, because my wife is white, so I can talk about white people all I want. Um, <laughs> She talks about me, so I've learned a lot about her. She's learned a lot about me. So 
Uh, talk about race, just laugh, and if I offend you, blame it on Eric. Um, <laughs> I met Ron Dosler, a white guy from Iowa, and he was – he had been on his church planting journey in the inner city and had done some bilingual churches and things like that. And, and, uh, but he kind of really didn't get a lot of traction. Like, you know, you know how it is when you, when you're in ministry and you have these audacious, you have these like audacious vision and, and you feel like God's called you to something and, and you look down the line and it's not where you want it to be. And you know, all these different things. And he started praying. started praying and and his prayer was pretty audacious and it was less selfish and more multiplication praying when he said God would you like send me somebody from the inner city you see the difference you see the difference from Lord use me to Lord use me to invest in a disciple maker who I can develop so that we can multiply churches. You see that? And so we had this conversation and uh, I met him while I was still on my last year of, of being uh, in work release, the correctional system. And he hired me while I was still in work release. So the day I walked out was the same month that we, <laughs> within three months we had launched a church in the same neighborhood I was a gangbanger in. The same, no, like geographically the same neighborhood. And that reminds me of something in Mark, um, the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus delivers this dude who was living in the projects. Okay, not really the projects, but a graveyard. It's kind of like the projects. Um, very, a very underserved area. <laughs> and he, he changes this guy's life. And as he changes his life, the guy says, he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, can I be a part of Jesus University? He wants to do a four-year program, maybe six, get an MDiv. All right, maybe become a doctor if somehow some in theology or something and and Jesus looks at him and he's like nah no actually once you go back to your neighborhood you can get more done where you're from than spending your time with me because you've already received an experience I've already set you free and you already have the tools necessary to see Decapolis, 10 cities, transformed. One man, one individual. That story makes me mad. You know why? It makes me mad that if one individual can make a difference in 10 cities, then why only 19,000 churches in America have a working model for disciple making? It makes me mad on one end, but then it 
gives me encouragement that we could do it. The wind of the Spirit maneuvering ourselves to find out what God is doing and joining him in it. And I love that, that, I love that Mark mandate because it's Jesus really giving us a vision for disciple making that sometimes doesn't fit our current models. And I think if we're going to see 25,000 new disciple makers in this region, it's going to require us to be confronted by possible paradigms that we've often adopted more so from, more so from tradition and rather, than, rather than the scriptures. Right? Thank God for tradition. But when tradition compromises transformation, it's time to adopt a new philosophy. And that's what I want to talk about today. And you're familiar with Matthew 28, right? Open up your Bibles. I want to, I want to go there. Anybody familiar with Yin Kai? You familiar? Anybody else familiar with Yin Kai? Yin Kai is this Asian dude, and uh, I met. I've been meeting my heroes over the last decade, actually. Um, but I met Yin Kai in in California at an exponential thing. Yin Kai, I think, is responsible for 150,000 churches. No, I think it's actually 170,000. And I was leaving a breakout, and, uh, um, and I did a double take. And I, I was trying not to be fanboy. You know how it is when you're at these conferences, and, you know, you're, like, trying not to fall out. I almost did, like, the Cornelius thing when he, like, drops at uh, Peter's feet. I promise you I thought about dropping at his brother's feet. And I got to meet him, and that, that brief encounter um, was pretty monumental for me. Um, but the movement that God used him in and is still using him in uh, came specifically out of Matthew chapter 28. And when, when, he, when he came to faith in Christ, he, he's reading this verse, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And we know it. It says Jesus came to them. And I I like to to emphasize that he he didn't go to everybody in this moment. Multiplication begins, the starting point for multiplication is when we are not trying to reach everybody, but we're actually trying to invest in a few people. Right? I did a workshop a few days ago. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, the level five framework that we at Exponential use. And just for sake of conversation, we call it, you know, there's five levels when you, when you think about where churches are in America. Uh, level one, a level one church is a church that is, is declining, right? And we see in the pandemic more and more churches, you know, close their doors, people, you know, walked away, pastors quit the pastorate. I mean, we saw it happen. And people weren't, leaders weren't able to pivot uh, because 
you know, we had to do things digitally and all these things happen. And we see this decline and, and much like what's happening in Europe right now. Right? You want a picture of the American church if we don't get about this vision, just look at Europe. And uh, level two churches are churches that are declining. I'm, I'm sorry, they're plateauing. Right? They're not, they're not, they're not gr- growing. They're just, they're just kind of coasting. That's cruise control. Something that I don't like to use when I'm on my way to Arbor Church. Because I'm trying to get there and not be late. But they're just coasting. Really no vision. Right? Maybe the greatest thing about their church is what they used to do. The sermons they used to preach. The programs we used to have. Just plateauing. But level three churches are interesting. We call this at Exponential a magnet because this magnet is the gold standard for American Christianity in America. And the magnet for level three is addition. It's churches that are focusing on, man, how many people can we get in the seats as fast as we can? And we quantify that by creating magazines that elevate who the fastest growing churches are in America. I'm thankful some of those magazines are now adding who are the reproducing churches in America, which means that we're moving forward. You know that we we live in a level three culture when you're on Facebook scrolling when you should be uh, studying for your sermon Um, or on Instagram, TikTok, maybe dancing. You know you shouldn't be dancing. Some of y'all are like, what is TikTok? <laughs> when you're scrolling and you see you're being targeted by the next company that's promising you to break 200 and 500 and 850 and 1,000. And many of y'all know what I'm talking about because y'all signed up for it. I did. And the crazy thing about being in the inner city and, 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 you know, imagine getting out of prison and you not really having a template for church. The only church I knew was prison church. Like, if you ever been to a third world country and you, you're in their worship services and, and it's, it's you could, the spirit is happening, like, that was my context. I didn't have any other context for church. And so, like, when I got out and, and I, you know, had, before I had got on with Ron, I had visited a few churches and I'm like, where's the spirit at? Because nobody had taught me church, I just had learned life in the spirit with brothers and community from a prison. And prison is like a third world country where explosive things are happening. And so this addition mindset is actually the greatest hindrance to multiplication. Now, you can't get multiplication without addition, but we can't king addition if we're going to see multiplication. We, we just found out Lifeway Research and discipleship.org and, and uh, Exponential got together and did, did a, another study on church planting, how many churches were actually reproducing in America. And I think at, at that point, it was only 4% of churches. 
4% of churches were actually reproducing, what we would call level four churches, churches that reproduce, churches that uh, if you, you, you plant a church, that they actually planted a church. Uh, the sad indictment on the, on, the, um, on the survey was that they couldn't find any level five churches, which are multiplication churches. And the type of way that we define multiplication is fourth generation. And in some countries, they're down to 19, 20, 30, 40, 50 generations of disciples and, and churches, right? And the closest, the closest that Exponential had even gotten to maybe some kind of level five activity is a dude named Ralph Moore. Anybody familiar with Ralph? Raise your hand if you're familiar with Ralph. Three, four, five, six, only six, seven people are familiar with Ralph Moore. And I met Ralph a couple years ago when I was at Exponential. I was, I was going down the hallway and, again, doing my fanboy stuff and kind of following him uh, like a stalker. And he, eventually he pulled me to the side. He put us to the side. And he, you know, he, had just been, he had just done his little session, and he started having a conversation with us, uh, with us dudes from the hood. And, and, uh, and I was just like, wow, this dude is amazing. And the cool thing about that is that conversation led to six weeks of being on Zoom with him every single week. And then during that six weeks, I finally, I said, you know what? There's something about this guy. And what Exponential had found out was they wanted to know actually how many churches had actually come out of the Hope Chapel movement, which was started by Ralph Moore. He had to go back and figure it out back from the 70s. It was like at that time, it was 2,300 churches since the 70s, a quarter of a million people. Let me rewind and say that again. A quarter of a million people, right? And so I'm like, I need to hang out with this guy. And, and so I said, hey, can you give me your schedule for the next year? Wherever you're going, I'm just going to follow you. <laughs> I'm so serious, you, you can ask him. In, in, the hood, in the hood, when you want somebody to believe what you're saying, you say, man, oh, my mama, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> it's, it's a way to validate that what you're saying is true. So anytime you're preaching or sharing the gospel and they don't believe you, you say, man, oh, my mama, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> so anyway, he said, I'm going to Japan. I said, okay, I'll meet you in Japan. I met him in Japan. I said, where are you going next? He said, I'm going to do exponential. Uh, I'm going to do some training in London. I said, I'll see you there. And I just started following this guy. And as I started following this guy, I started to learn and I started to get back in touch with that MDNA that Alan Hurst talks about, that missional DNA that's at the heart of every single person, regardless of their position in the ecclesia, regardless of whether or not they're a pastor or not. We all have this missional DNA that there's something in us that, that knows that regardless of whether I'm a full-time vocational leader or whether I work at Starbucks, that perhaps God wants to do something greater in me. And as I started hanging out with him, I started to realize that, you know, if you're hanging around somebody that, like, it, they cause you to, they cause your, um, your, um, your apostolic imagination to kind of grow, like they make you uncomfortable? You know, kind of like when you're in worship and somebody raised their hands and you're not? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, they be in it and you be like, But I love being around those people 
and one of those people for me have, have been Ralph, has been Ralph. And what I've learned about this idea of disciple making is that we need, yes, to have a vision for disciple making, but that vision for disciple making culminates in starting with a definition for disciple making. Because when I fail to have a definition for disciple making, I lose traction in disciple making. That was really good. Did you write that down? Don't ask me to repeat it. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yin Kai recognized some key imperatives in this verse. Therefore, go. Right? Go and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. Go, make, baptize, teach them to obey, not teach them and give them information. You see the motivation? He said the motivation of your teaching has to be focused on obedience. Maybe that sad indictment of less than 5% of disciple making in America is because we've been teaching people to inform them versus teaching people to commission them. Everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always, which is the secret sauce to disciple making. The secret sauce to disciple making is him with us. We know that, right? I always say when I look at the New Testament, they didn't even have a Bible. The early church didn't have a Bible, that, the, the Bible that we have. Is that right? They had the Old Testament, they had the Torah, they had the Psalms, they had all, all these things. But them cats didn't even have a Bible, dog. I mean, I'm going slang on y'all, my bad. <laughs> didn't even have a Bible. And they got more done. We have canon now. And when we look at the book of Acts, we see, I had a professor tell me one time, like them dudes sometimes are just too smart for their own good. I'm so serious. Like they write stuff that we don't even read, you know. Let's be honest. I got my DS breathing down my neck right now about ordination. I'm like, man, you better, man, leave me alone. You want me to read 30 books on a dead guy? Like, come on, man. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> but when you look, the, the dead guy did some good work. I'm not saying that. But when you look at the, new te- the, the, uh, the book of Acts, what my professor told me is, and I want to be mindful of my time. He told me, he said, yeah, the New Testament is like the book of Acts is more of, it's, it's a description of the, of the church, of, of the work of God in the church. And I always wrestle with that because, like, no, and and my pushback was, no, it is more than description. It's prescription. It is prescription. And when I take a prescription, it is designed to heal me. No pun intended that Luke was a doctor. 
But I think it was a prescription for multiplication. And the prescription for multiplication is um, divulged in this conversation with his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. And as I've been thinking through this and processing this, not as a professional, listen, man, I'm from the gutter. I have nothing to offer anybody other than what I see in the gospel. And what I see in the gospel are bands of practitioners. That's what we are. And as we flatten our structures to invite laity to the table, we can mobilize more people for multiplication as we put our titles to the side, not use them as a prerequisite for getting involved in what real ministry is, which is in life itself. And so when we think about this vision for disciple making, as I said earlier, it begins with a definition. And so my question to you this morning is, what is your definition of a disciple? Write it down. Write it down. What is your definition of a disciple? If, 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 if I came to you and I said, hey, man, can you give me, uh, don't, don't give me a sermon on disciple. Like, what is your definition, even further, of a disciple maker? Where's your definition of a disciple maker? Okay, and after you write it down, I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you each to share what's your definition of a disciple maker. And don't be copying off nobody's notes. Write it down. What's your definition of a disciple maker? And then I want y'all to share. So do some talking. And then I want you to argue a little bit about it. For real, argue about it. Push back. Agree with them. Disagree with them. Now's the time to push back. Ask them, what they're, ask them hey, what's your definition? Ask them why. Why did you choose that? I'll give you one minute. Give you one to two minutes. So the reason, the reason why I had us kind of go through this exercise is, did you hear the plethora of def- definitions? Now, if I was to stand up before my church, if you're a senior leader in here, if you stand up in front of your church and you have a definition of disciple, I wonder what their definition is. The disconnection is in definition. And if everybody's definition is different, how can we create a multiplication movement? You see how important? And then I ask you, well, well, how did you arrive at that definition? Because if we don't have a clear process for even prescribing a definition from the New Testament, how can we actually move forward together? So as we talk about, like, this idea of, of disciple maker, we have to begin with definition, but we, af- we also have to have a process. And so my question for you is how simple is your process or do you have one that has arrived at a definition? And I love what you said, man. You hit it on the head. Most pastors come up with a definition. If they come up with a definition, they come up with a definition of disciple in a silo. And then get mad when the church doesn't get on board with his or her definition. 
So the process of defining disciple begins with, begins with some, many of you said it, is I need, a, I need to see in Jesus what a disciple is. So I need a basic theology. Because if I just go to exponential and get, and get a definition of disciple without encountering the scripture and the spirit, then I'll just replicate what I heard. I'm an exponential associate. I'm one of the leaders here. I ain't knocking the exponential. That's not what I'm saying. Like we go to conferences, we come to intensives, we come to learn everything. But if I, if I go there and replicate a definition without going through the process, then I end up truncating the gospel in my life and no synergy happens and 25,000 people are never reached. You feel where I'm coming from? And so what I'm, what I'm asking us to do is to begin with step one of what is my theology of, this, of a disciple because Jesus is perfect theology, right? He, 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 is, he is God incarnate. So I have, to, I have to go through his life and I have to look at it closely and not just look at it closely but live in harmony with the spirit closely in obedience. And as I develop a theology in community, then I can move to the next step of engaging a philosophy that we can all wrap our arms around. At our church, we believe simply that a disciple is a hope dealer. I know, I know y'all looking at me, they're like, Eric, why'd you bring this guy here? <laughs> Disciple is a hope dealer. Watch this. How do I arrive at that? First Peter 1.13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. First Peter 5.10. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory after you have suffered a while will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's the language of hope. First Thessalonians 1 verse 3. We remember that before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. To them God has chosen, Colossians 1.27, uh, to make known among the, the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, don't argue with me on our definition of disciple. All I'm asking for you is to arrive at one that everyone can rally around. Because we know from Scripture uh, when they started building that big old massive infrastructure in Genesis, they were able to do it because they were on the same page, going in the same direction. So what am I saying? We must have a definition of disciple maker. That definition of disciple maker begins with the first step of having a theology that is flexible enough and raw enough that we find in the life of Jesus where we can get around tables and argue about, hey, why'd you say, why'd you say that was a disciple? I love what you said. We brought it all together, right? Um, um, Eastern, Eastern um, life is all about dialogue. 
Saul, if I stand up here as one part of the body speaking about what a disciple is, but the other parts of the body, um, if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I'm the pinky, but the, but the pinky and the toe ain't, aren't, sorry, communicating about what disciple maker is, then we can't actually move forward together. So as I develop a theology of disciple maker in community, we can then form a philosophy that we can subscribe to that's rooted in the scriptures and empowered by the spirit. And then and only then can we begin developing methodology for how we live it out as leaders who lead others. And so for us in our church, our leaders, and the, the way that this happens is, is at, a, at a leadership level, beginning to, 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 to say, hey, what, let's, let's go through the Gospels in a year. Let's, let's create a plan to go through the gospel. And as we go through the gospel, even as a team, let's look at those key indications of what Jesus teaches us about what it means to be a disciple maker. And then let's arrive on some pillars of what it is to be a disciple so that we can then start inviting influencers who are in our church and then volunteers. I don't even like that word. Other family members who are in our church, family members, church congregation. And then I begin equipping other people with pure definition. Definition. You know what I love about gang culture? I used to be an ex-gang banger. It is clear. When I, when I, sign the, the, I know the history of, of, my, of where I'm from, gangs in the 80s, uh, the drug trade came over from California. California hit Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, Nebraska, um, uh, dudes from there came and set up shop, and it was first called Santana Block, and then Santana Block morphed into Hilltop Crips, and then Hilltop Crips formed an alliance with Pleasant View Mafia, and then Pleasant View Mafia and Hilltop Crips was an alliance. I know my history. And, and as, I, as I grew up in it, uh, I, was, I was actually I was given a definition that I, that I, that I, like I signed up to die for that definition, right? Like I, I signed up to die and say, man, I'm a hilltop crip. This is my geography. This is my literature. This is my creed. This is my code. This is who my enemy is. This is how we get money. It was very thought, rank, very structured, fluid enough to, to, to grow into uh, that's why if you want to learn about church multiplication, come to the hood. Or at least watch Narcos on Netflix. I'm just, I ain't promoting Narcos. I'm just I'm not promoting Narcos. But as we as, we as a team began to, 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 to walk together and have conversation together around, he's shaking his head back there. Um, as, as, as leaders, we arrived at a, that, that a disciple maker is a hope dealer, but more specifically, as we were able to like, like arrive at that simple definition. It, when I say a disciple is a hope dealer, that doesn't give you like a full definition, but it at least gives us a picture. We learn in pictures, don't we? Right? Does, does, does your does your picture of disciple making, is it sticky where somebody can take it and run with it? If it's not memorable, it's not portable. And as we, as we, as we hash that out a little bit more, we were able to land on a couple things as 
a hope dealer. A hope dealer um, in definition, yes, is a hope dealer, but guess what? That hope dealer is missional. A hope dealer is missional. A hope dealer understands that in the gang you sign up to die, but in the kingdom you sign up to live. And so our team, our church understands that even as Alan Hurst said, that church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church, right? So when I say hope dealer in our, in our church, people know, yeah, we're on a mission. And it's serious. That's why gangbangers make the best preachers and pastors, you know. And people in prison. Your, your whole Bible is practically written, New Testament practically written by thugs. <laughs> and then we arrived and said, you know what? A hope dealer is not only missional, but a hope dealer is, we'd say, is biblical. And, and, what, and what, I, what we mean by biblical is that they don't know everything about the Bible. They don't know everything about Scripture, but their lives live and breathe it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, right? We don't live by, men and women, we don't live by word alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Thirdly, we said as a team that uh, a hope dealer is, is spiritual. Now, not spiritual as in religious spiritual. When you ask somebody, how you doing, and they start reciting First Chronicles to you, Spiritual in that, as we, um, I saw it somewhere, I, I saw it somewhere, a spirit-filled moment, that's where I saw it, right there, spirit-filled. Uh, Hope Dilla understands that um, life in the scripture without the spirit is frivolous, right? And as Paul alludes to in Galatians, like walk and step with the Spirit. And, and as we walk and step with the Spirit, um, we can then move to practice, which is another aspect of what it means to be a hope dealer. We're practical. I'm not trying to, the goal of, of leading people in our church and people that I'm personally discipling, I'm not trying like my goal is not for them to become a theologian. Thank, thank God for the theologians that we have that has set a precedent for how we understand the word of God for sure. But I'm, I'm simply trying to Matthew 28 them, teach them to obey. Right? And 10 minutes left. And then a hope dealer is, is also pastoral. And you know why I, 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 uh, we arrived at that aspect of Hope Diller is because it shatters the notion that somehow the sole responsibility of the senior leader or senior pastor is to pastor everybody. Let me say that one again. People call my phone, hey, uh, we trying to get married. Can you marry us? I'm like, nope, I don't do that no more. I should, but uh, it's not, it's not my, my call right now. People call my phone, 
And I just turned my phone off. Why? Because when we allow people to put expectations on us that are unrealistic, we end up dying on the inside, don't we? When we can't meet their expectation. And you can't possibly expect me to show up to all y'all baby showers. I don't even like baby showers. I mean, they're cool. My wife drags me kicking and screaming to weddings, man. I'll be pouting. She's like, man, I should have just left you at home. First, time, first thing I agree with you on today. But I realize that we all need to be pastored. Like we all need to be cared for. But if I don't share that, load with the family, then they end up putting any of us on a pedestal that is unrealistic because the larger the pedestal, the further down you or I can fall. And so my question is, how, how, as, as you arrive through a, a theological framework and, and move into a philosophy of what disciple maker is so that it imposes your methodology and practices, as you and I go through that process, then the question then becomes is, is how, how are you as a leader going to make it simple and sticky of what a disciple is? And then how are you going to prescribe to your church yourself the aspects of disciple so that it's clear, simple, sticky, memorable, and portable. And then as we do that, we can get people on the same page. And as they're on the same, as they're on the same page, we can all move forward together. And so as we begin with this, this definition of disciple, um, then I think we need to be able to dis- like not only define it, but describe it. How are you clearly articulating when, when, when somebody comes to your church or, or maybe when you're out in public or maybe with your, when, when you're with people who you're discipling? Is there a clear description of your, of your disciple-making process? For us, we've said the disciple-making process of a, of a hope dealer is when we lead people into a hope-filled life in Christ. That's how I would define our process in our church. Leading people into a hope-filled life in Christ. This isn't just rhetoric and semantics, but I recognize in order to build culture, you need to have a common language. That's what I'm getting at today. And that without a comic language, we don't create culture. We actually provoke chaos. And provoked chaos causes the church to decline. So, in two minutes, how would you describe your process? Somebody said, hey, tell 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 me about the process of disciple making. What would you say? Okay, go. What would you say? Write it down, and then I want you to share it.
Imagine turning your Sunday morning into one dialogue. What if you stood up this Sunday morning and said, hey, everybody take the chairs from rows and put them in circles. And here's the question I want to ask you today. I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to give you John chapter 4 today. I want everybody to read it today. I'm not going to read it for you. Everybody read it aloud. And, and, and as they read it aloud um, in their groups uh, about John chapter 4, and then you ask them, hey, in light of John chapter 4, uh, what does John chapter 4 teach us about the definition of a disciple? And then allowing them to speak. I dare somebody to do that. I dare you to throw your sermon out this Sunday. I double, y'all remember that? I double dog trip. Some of y'all will, I'm in a series, so what? (laughs) And then you say, okay, everybody talk. And then you have one person stand up. And you say, can somebody stand up? Watch this. This is so dope. Watch this. Because we came for answers today, didn't we? You're like, show, show me how to develop leaders. Like, just don't tell me to do this. Tell me how to deploy disciple makers. And then you, you, you have not read John chapter 4. CPT time. We can't do that. I have one minute. John chapter, I'm fine. Five more minutes? Cool. Great. I like to honor. I like to honor. So you get up and you say, okay, everybody, put your, uh, it's maybe hard if you have like them long pews. I don't know if you have those, but anyway, you have to break them down into micro groups after that. Um, And you say, everybody read John chapter 4. Okay, based on John chapter 4, tell me uh, the definition of a disciple. And then you have them go back and forth. And then you say, okay, somebody stand up and tell me. And then the first person to stand up is the leader. You just found a leader. You just found a leader. You found a leader. Right? And then you let the leader speak. And then in front of everybody, you affirm that leader. What am I doing? I'm creating culture. I'm turning them into a hero maker. And then all the leaders who stood up in that Sunday gathering, then I meet with them right after church. And I say, hey, I see something in you. Let's start an experiment of mobilizing more people like you to make disciples. Because after church every Sunday, instead of going out to eat pizza or fried chicken, I'm going to spend an hour with you 10 people who stood up. And together, we're going to develop definition. And then as we develop definition, you're going to go back and you're going to start training others around that definition. And I'll fully support you and give you all the resources that you need. And then the next Sunday, you come back again. And then you say, okay, we're going to read Luke chapter Four. <laughs> All right. After you read Luke chapter 4, can, I want you to have, we're going to get in groups again. Yes, on Sunday. Throw your sermon out, man. Woman. And then you're you going to have everybody read it. You're going to have them talk. And then you're going to say, hey, um, talk to us about a clear description or a process of making disciples. And then you ask 10 people to stand up. Now you got another set of leaders. Now you got a whole summit. And then all of a sudden, the groundswell begins. And people start to be re-energized over again about the mandate of making disciples.
disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's just one way that we can begin. So, Father, I pray at the end of this session that uh, perhaps something um, was heard through conversation from up front or in our circles that maybe gave us one little small uh, nugget that uh, we can run with and run with it in such a way that we begin clearly saying, I'm going to start with a definition and I'm going to unpack a description, a way to encapsulate this process of disciple making. And I'm going to make it so simple as a leader that my three-year-old can regurgitate it and preach it on Sunday without any problems. Father, I pray that we'd all be encouraged and inspired around that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. SMC Podcast.